0: I was 13. The first time I went to a nightclub, it was a nightclub for middle schoolers, okay? Uh, and one of my friends had rented out the whole facility. I think it was called the Loft. It was very cool, uh, and she had rented it out for her birthday. And so I was pretty excited about this because one, I got an invitation, like two fog machines and laser lights and music. Who doesn't love that as a kid? And then three. I was sort of into the girl who was having the party, you know? So this was great. It was, things were lining up really nicely for your boy. There was one problem, though. Uh, I never have enjoyed dancing, nor, nor am I very good at it. But on the whole, I imagine it wasn't too terrible because I don't remember anything about the dancing or, or much about the evening at all, uh, for, with the exception of, of one particular encounter. You see, at the time, uh, nobody else really danced either. And so the party really devolved into us singing various rap lyrics to one another. Uh, And and I have to tell you, I really loved rap music back in the day, uh, sort of grew up on it, and so I knew all the words. Uh, And eventually, at one point, I I came face-to-face with my classmate, uh, whose party it was, and we were singing a particular verse to one another. And at that moment, I froze. Nerves, I suppose and I'll never forget this, uh, to my surprise, she, she stopped sort of singing the words and then brought upon me uh, humiliation, the likes of which I was unprepared for. Uh, she, she turned and said above the music to everyone that was there, he doesn't know the words. He doesn't know the words. Ignominy. That's the problem for Solomon, it seems, as we come to 1 Kings in chapter 11 and just these first 8 verses. It seems that he he knows the words but he doesn't know them by heart. When he comes face to face with the things that he wants in life or desires, he forgets the words completely. Those words that we read for our scripture reading in Deuteronomy chapter 17 which instruct him to not gather to himself excess gold or silver or chariots and horses from Egypt or many wives. He is to be a king who is distinctly God's king, not like the nations around him. And yet, his heart turns. We're going to look at the first eight verses. Like I said, we'll work through them in two parts this morning. Uh, You have it there before you in our outline. And the main idea this morning is this. It's it's really quite simple. Uh, Cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Know God's words. And keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. By doing so, you will save both yourself, as Paul says to Timothy, and his hearers. This applies to us as a church. If we keep not a close watch on our life and doctrine, we are prone to wander, as the old hymn says. Let's pray, and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father God, we pray that you would help those of us who have gathered here to worship you this morning as your people, who have committed to one another, through baptism and covenanting together and membership, we ask that you would help us to keep our hearts pure by hiding your word in our hearts, that we might not sin against you. We pray for those who are among us who may not know you, have not committed to you through a public profession of faith, joining themselves to your church in baptism. Pray that they might hear the good news this morning, let go of their sin, and cling to Christ in faith. They would repent, and have their sins forgiven. Lord, we thank you that indeed you are mighty to save. Father, we thank you that you welcome all who come to you through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Right away we are struck with the connection and the contrast brought to our attention in that first line of chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many women. Immediately thinking of verse 3 of chapter 3. Do you remember what is said of Solomon there? It's the only time it's said of anyone in the Old Testament. Solomon loved the Lord. And here we are a few chapters later. Solomon loved many foreign women. We pointed out his union with Pharaoh's daughter back in chapter 3. It's not as if uh, Solomon's heart turn is going to come out of nowhere. But we've been following the sort of breadcrumbs that the author of Kings has been dropping for us throughout. We've understood there are seeds of worldliness in Solomon's life that are, are growing up, and now in chapter 11, they come into full bloom. His desire for gold guns and girls consumes him and turns his heart away from the Lord his God and it wasn't that his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter initially is is bad because she's of a different race right we tried to point this out last time i think it's important to say again it wasn't wrong because she was of a different ethnicity than solomon the reason that that marriage was prohibited was because Pharaoh's daughter followed Egypt's gods. And to, union, to be unified with somebody who followed false gods, you would run the risk of having your heart turned away from the one true God. And so this was a rule not just for uh, Solomon, but for all those in Egypt. They weren't to marry people who worshipped foreign gods. Uh, the same is true for us today. If you are a Christian, uh, you are not to marry somebody who doesn't worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that darkness and light don't have anything in common. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. And so the, the top condition for a Christian who is looking for a spouse is that their future spouse would worship the Lord their God. We are not to be married to those who do not follow King Jesus Missionary dating is a bad idea. Not to marry those who might turn our hearts away to false gods. And yet, this is what Solomon does. And he he loves not just one woman who worships false gods, but many women. And look at the list here Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite, from the nations. From which it is clear the Lord had said, You shall not enter into marriage with them, nor they with you, for they will surely turn your heart after their gods. And Solomon, I mean, if you just do the math here, right, there's a thousand of them. Many wives in direct opposition to the Lord's word. It should come as no surprise to us that his heart ends up turned away. Still, it should strike us, we should ask the question, I think, how does Solomon get to a place where he's willing to enter into these marriages? Many commentators have said and pointed out this would be sort of your normal mode of political operation in the ancient world. You want to gather power to yourself, you marry a bunch of women from a bunch of different nations, and you all sort of have these treaties, and your power and your wealth, they're going to increase. But God had told Solomon deliberately, don't do that, trust me. Don't trust weapons, don't trust your wealth, don't trust these women and the the sort of political relationships they can gain for you, trust me. And that, that might have been one way that Solomon sort of squared his actions with the Lord's word. This is necessary for the safety and political advancement of the kingdom. But that's not what the text says. The text says Solomon loved many women. You see it in verse 2 there. Solomon clung to these in love. The reason Solomon goes after many women is because he wants to. He desires them. And his desire for these women allows him to change what he believes about God's doctrine, about God's word, so that he can chase his desires. Solomon, at the end of the day, is more a a disciple of his feelings than he is a disciple of God's word. He goes after these foreign women. And in so doing, redefines marriage. He pictures it in a way that is abhorrent. He sullies it. Marriage, we know, is between one biological male and one biological female for life. It's a prescription that is laid out in Genesis. Chapter 2, in verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to, hold fast to, his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Sometimes as Christians, we arrive at the right conclusion that marriage is between a man and a woman for life, but we we sometimes leave the reasons for that behind, leave the arguments for that behind, but it's important that we understand why we would argue and arrive at the conclusion that marriage is only between a man, one man, and a woman for life. And the answer for us is it comes through Genesis. God has revealed to us that the creation of marriage is to the end, ultimately, of his glory and to the end of partnership. God says early in Genesis, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Marriage is made for partnership, for pleasure. They shall become one flesh. Indeed, marriage is made for procreation. Be fruitful and multiply. These things work together in marriage to fulfill the cultural mandate. God had made Adam and Eve in his image, and as his image bearers, they were to spread across the earth so that his rule would be made evident throughout the whole world. That's the idea. They're to fill the earth with God's glory and the truth about God's reign. Marriage was to be the building block of society. It was about the flourishing both of humanity and the glory of God. We also learn on on this side of the cross that original in God's design for marriage was that it was also to picture the gospel. It was to picture for us the relationship between Christ and the church. And so in Ephesians 5, when when Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And husbands, love your wives and lay down your lives for them as Christ has for the church. The reason for these commands, Paul grounds in the purpose of marriage and back in the creation account in Genesis. He says in verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and cling to, hold fast to, his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Our relationships, our marriages, are meant to be a dramatic portrayal of the gospel, wherein husbands use their loving authority to sacrifice for the good of their wives, and wives, in response to that loving authority of their husband, come and submit themselves to it. We are to see the goodness of God's authority and our obedience to it in marriage. So that when we come to Christ, we're able to, say that we're able to see in marriage how good it is for us to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and submit ourselves to his loving authority. We see his love for us dying on the cross in our place, for our sins, and we are then compelled by his love to love him back. Well, how how do we love God back? We obey his word. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. 1 John 5, this is how we know, this is what love for God is. We keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So if you want to say to me, well, I love God, the way that you express your love for God is by obeying him. And and all of this, Paul says, is wrapped up in God's purpose for marriage, right? It, It also shows us that we are to only worship one God, right? We have one husband, one wife, made one in the flesh, and we are to be exclusively devoted to the one God who exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Solomon, because he wants to go after these women, throws all of that out of the window. He wants to chase his desires for these women, and so he changes his doctrine. He changes what he believes about the Word of God, or maybe he just forgets the words so that he can do what he wants. Can't help but look back to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 yeah, we've moved from Genesis chapter 2 to Genesis chapter 3 this morning, if you're keeping score, Uh, but you remember in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have been given the instruction to not eat. They can eat from all the trees in the garden, but there's one, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they're not supposed to eat from, and that tree stands as a testimony to the fact that God gets to determine right and wrong, and so as they abstain from eating from that tree, They are acting in obedience to God. They're saying he is the ruler. He determines right and wrong, not us. It's a tree of judgment. And then the serpent famously shows up and says to Eve, did God really say that you can't eat from the tree? Eventually, Eve gets to the point where she has this desire well up inside of her to take fruit from the tree to follow her feelings and to decide for herself what is right and wrong rather than submitting herself to God. And so we read in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and eight. When a strong passion for what God had forbidden rose up within Eve, she was ready to redefine the doctrine of God's judgment. I will not surely die. She changed what she believed about God in order to give approval to her desires. She was willing to follow her feelings rather than God's word. Is that not precisely what Solomon has done? He's found a way to follow his feelings at the expense of obedience to God's word. And I think this is just such a vivid picture of us, is it not? Every time we choose to sin, we are choosing to follow our feelings instead of following God's word. We're being discipled by our feelings instead of our Savior. I mean, This is what pride is. Pride is saying, I will decide what is right and wrong for myself and I will follow my feelings rather than submitting myself to what God says is right or wrong. We follow our feelings headlong into sin, and we are not ashamed of twisting God's word and saying, did God really say, or conveniently forgetting God's word and ignoring it so that we might do what we want. I think the, this is an endemic in the church. There is a passion among some who would profess to be Christians to fulfill sexual appetites that the scripture forbids. And there is, and I think this might even be a bigger problem, a deep desire within many professing churches to have the approval of the world. So churches and Christians make themselves pliable. Not because there are good arguments for abandoning God's word, but because they want to satisfy their feelings. They want to follow their feelings into sexual immorality. They want to follow their feelings into gaining cultural approval. They want to please man rather than God. i have often said, where your heart is, there your arguments will be also. And so wanting to follow their feelings... Some buy into really poor arguments. It's okay to have sex outside of marriage. Really, the idea that you would restrict your sexual activity to just one person for one life after vowing to one another in a marriage, that's antiquated. And really, it's silly because like, you don't want to wait to have sex until you're like 35, 36 but you definitely can't get married in your young 20s because you've got to go to college and you've got to get an education and you've got to get a good job and you've got to get a house and and get your whole life situated before you get married. Then then you can get married in your 30s. And so it's best to just sort of explore and try things out with different people. You know, you wouldn't buy a car without looking under the hood. And so it's what's practical. And so some of us, some churches, Because they want to follow their desires, justify, I like the old word for it, fornication. Sex outside of marriage. Others, and this has been very popular recently, uh, want to justify homosexuality. You know, it's, it's okay because the Bible's teaching is just out of touch. And yeah, I know the Bible is clear that a man shouldn't lay with a man as with a woman, and a woman shouldn't lay, with another woman as with a man, and sex is to be restrained inside of marriage. But, you know, Jesus was welcoming. And so where the Bible says that it's wrong, we don't really need to pay attention to those texts because the Bible's not the gospel. Bible's not God, the Bible's not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. And we all know that Jesus was really welcoming and really loving and really affirming. and so we, we ought to affirm and welcome uh, homosexual relationships. Or now where we are in our culture is onto the, the transgender issue, right? It's clear that God made men to be men and women to be women, and it's a good thing. It's good to be a man, it's good to be a woman. There is destiny wrapped up in the way that God has designed us. He intends for us to bring him glory as men and as women. His word is clear that a man should not pretend to be a woman and a woman should not pretend to be a man. That is an abomination in the eyes of God. It is to say, I will define myself. You won't define me, God, even if my biology says something different. I'm in charge of me. And, and we ought to, the argument goes, as a church, if we, we really want to love our neighbors, we ought to affirm this fantasy in people. To the extent that, that we would cooperate with them, even, even young children, in helping them to mutilate themselves under the care of doctors so they can rearrange body parts. And this is happening. And there are professing Christians and professing churches that are buying in hook, line, and sinker. Because, hey, this wrong-headed idea about what love is, love means unconditional affirmation. Friends, that is patently false. Love is to conform ourselves to the word of God. It is unloving to entertain our own pride and our own feelings It's unloving to say to others who are following their feelings and following their pride, that's great because the end of that road is hell under the judgment of God. Judgment does come. It is unloving to tell somebody who is standing in train tracks as a train comes toward them, that's fine, you're safe. That's not loving. It's hateful. And yet because some of us have a desire for fornication or homosexuality or to define ourselves by how we feel on the inside we abandon God's word for some of us some churches because we so want to be approved by others we want to be liked oh well, we're willing willing to, to change God's word want to be like the serpent on the one hand and say, well, did God really say? And so we will employ some half-clever hermeneutics and say, yeah, God didn't really outlaw these things. He wouldn't do that. Or we go the way of Thomas Jefferson and just come out with our own sexual revolution edition of the Bible. Y'all remember what Thomas Jefferson did, right? It's pretty famous took a razor and scissors and cut out the parts of the Bible that he thought were over the top. I think it was only 83 pages when it was all said and done. Friends, when we s- decide that we're going to follow our feelings, it's a pretty easy process to, to recognize. What happens is if, we, if we're trying to hold on to Jesus and our sin at the same time, we immediately come to the Bible And instead of submitting ourselves to God's word and submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, we go, well, I don't like that Jesus. And so we come back to the Bible and we set ourselves over top of it and we say, did God really say? We take out our scissors and our razor and we start just twisting the scriptures and changing the doctrines so that we can justify following our feelings. We actually set ourselves over God's word and act as our own Lord's. I think one of the important questions to ask ourselves as Christians and that the church should ask itself is, how does Jesus Christ exercise lordship in your life? Think about it. How does Jesus exercise lordship over you? And the answer is with his word. He he says, and then you do. You obey. And if someone says, well, I'm going to either ignore the Bible or stand over it and shift it around so that it justifies everything that I want to do. Well, at that point, Jesus isn't your Lord. You are Lord of Jesus. You've made a, a Jesus junior in your own imagination, a Jesus who cannot save, who is not real. And the reality is, if that's you, or you're in a church that is functioning that way, that we don't want Jesus to rule us as king, but we want to be ruled by our feelings. We want to go the way of every Disney movie and follow our hearts. The Bible is clear. That which is true and good and beautiful is consistent with the character of God and the commands of God, which are revealed to us in his word. The Bible is clear when it comes particularly to this cultural issue of sexual immorality, that those who practice such things deserve to die. And not only those who practice them, but those who give approval to those who practice them. Friends, let me be very, very clear. God hates that which is contrary to his will and his word, and he will punish it. Our culture has no sort of category for judgment today, Judgment is the the first doctrine to be denied in Scripture, but hell is very real, and God very much will judge sinners. He will punish eternally all those who refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ in faith. God hates that which is not good and true and beautiful. He hates fornication. He hates homosexuality. He hates transgenderism. He hates promiscuity. He hates deviant sexual behavior. He hates this polygamy in Solomon. You see in verse nine, the Lord was angry with Solomon. The Lord gets angry when we follow our feelings into sin instead of obeying his word. Only way outside of God's right wrath towards sin is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, we must remember that we are called to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our soul, with all our strength. We must remember the words, the Apostle John, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Church, we must remember who it is we have trusted. We must stay where we are standing and stand fast on the word of God because it is his word that brings life. It is Jesus Christ who is the king who saves us from hell and from sin. We may be tempted to step away from God's word and follow our feelings and redefine, and that might bring us some sort of short-term satisfaction, but in the end, God's judgment comes. I always think when it comes to these matters, uh, when Dr. Moeller was installed as the president at Southern Seminary, uh, there was a group there, a large, large coalition, who wanted to move away from the authority and inspiration of the Bible. And they were very disappointed that someone who believed the Bible, like Dr. Moeller, would be appointed as president because it meant change was coming to the institution. And so as he walked down into the chapel to deliver his installation message, And once he was therein, many simply turned their backs to him as he arrived. There was an effigy of him dangling in a tree outside. And yet Dr. Moeller stood there and delivered a message titled, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Very clever. And his point was, we can go out and just do social goods. But if we abandon the word of God and abandon the gospel, it's all for naught. God's judgment will come. Our responsibility, first and foremost, is to stand fast on the word of God, to stand firm on the rock of ages. Friends, we must not, if you are tempted as an individual Christian to follow your feelings, you must not, you must stand fast. As a church, corporately, we might long for the approval of the world But we must remember, we don't live to please people, but to please the Lord our God. Stand fast. Be immovable. Do not love the world. Non-Christian, the sexual revolution promises you that you will be most satisfied when you are able to satisfy every feeling you have. But friend, that makes you little more than an animal. Animals do what they want when they want to all the time. Friend, it won't bring you any lasting satisfaction. It won't bring you meaning. You were made for a purpose. You were made in the image of God, full of dignity, honor, and worth. You were made to worship God and to bring him glory. Glory by obeying his commands together with all the rest of his people. If you want meaning and satisfaction in life and pleasure that goes on into eternity, don't look to sex. Don't look to any other idol in this world. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives life and gives it abundant. He gives eternal life. He has purpose for you. And friend, he forgives. He forgives all who come to him in faith. Solomon changes his doctrine to chase his desires despite God's warning. Going to foreign women will cause his heart to turn away. And we read at the end of verse 3 and going into verse 4, And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart. After other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. This is a devastating progression. The wise King Solomon shows us once more why He is Solomon the Gray. Starts out, he loves the Lord his God. Now he loved many foreign women to whom he clings in love. His heart is turned away after false gods. He doesn't walk like David. And you think about David's life and you go, David was a murderer. He was sexually immoral. What's the difference between David and Solomon? One of the primary differences we see in this particular text is repentance David turned back to the Lord. Now, I'll argue when we get to Solomon's funeral a few sermons from now that I'm hopeful that Solomon is in heaven. But this text in particular teaches us that Solomon doesn't repent. We don't see him repenting at the end of this text. It's to stand to us as a warning. The difference between a non-Christian and a Christian, it isn't their moral dignity, primarily. It's that one comes to Jesus in repentant faith, and the other does not. It's not that you can't make mistakes and can't sin. God requires repentance that we let go of our sin and take hold of Christ. Solomon doesn't follow God as David did. David didn't follow perfectly, but he repented. And David never went and worshiped false gods. But we see Solomon doing that here. And not just worshiping them, but building temples for them on the hill east of Jerusalem. And so the image is you've got the temple of God that's beautiful that Solomon built, and next to it you have Solomon's house, and then Pharaoh's daughter's house, Solomon's wife, so you see his divided heart. And then on this hill east of Jerusalem, you have these temples to various gods looking down on the temple of the one true God is an abomination. Not only that, but these gods for whom Solomon built these houses, well, the, their religions uh, promoted things like ritual prostitution and child sacrifice. It is shameful what Solomon has done. And the author shows us that a little bit. He changes the names of these gods a little bit. He tweaks them so that they sound like the Hebrew word for shame. saying, shame on Solomon for doing these things. And we look back and we go, how could this happen? Like we said, it didn't happen overnight. It's not like Solomon one day was asking God for a listening heart and receiving wisdom. And then, you know, he just woke up and said, you know what? I'm going to become greedy, idolatrous, going to become a womanizer. I'm just going to completely turn away from the Lord. Like, Nobody did. It's clear. This happened over time, as he seared his conscience and did what he knew was wrong, over and over and over. I do think back to that passage in Deuteronomy 17. It's easy for us to overlook this. But in verse 18, Deuteronomy 17, listen to what the instructions are for the king. When he sits on this throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book. A copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law. I wonder, was Solomon, did he keep this copy of the law? Is he reading it daily? A good way to guard yourself against sin is to follow these. This prescription, we have more than just the law that Solomon had. We have the whole book. Sin creeps little by little. (laughs) I just wonder if he, he read it, knew the words, but didn't know the words by heart. He forgot them. And all of a sudden we end up here. Does a heart turn towards false gods. Friends, we we must work diligently against the seeds of sin in our own hearts. That's why we said a few weeks ago that we want to take our hearts out of our chest and look in the corners of them to see if there's any sin there. And then because we follow Jesus together as a church, we want to take our heart and hand it to the person next to us and say, do you see any monsters under my bed? Is is there sin there that I'm not seeing? We, We need to do that so that we don't end up consumed by sin. So, How, how does this happen? What well, happens in Solomon the same way it happens in anyone. James chapter 1, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. You can see the picture, sin unaddressed inwardly grows and then goes outward and then brings forth condemnation and death. About a year ago, I was walking home from from the building over here one night. I can't remember why I was over here. But, But it was dark out, and the only thing illumined in my driveway was the one motion light and Chelsea was standing there uh, with her sister and a number of my children gathered around them, all peering down into this little Tupperware container. And I thought to myself, that's really weird. It's weird. So eventually, I I come upon them and I, I look down into this little container, and what I see is this little tiny baby snake, it could have maybe been this long, which had been dismembered into four different pieces. It was a brutal scene. There was lots of blood, lots of pieces. And Chelsea insists, baby Copperhead had to be done. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. You know. I had a picture of it and you know, sent it to a trusted authority who then confirmed with me that it was nothing more than a harmless garden snake. Still, she killed it uh, brutally. She was taking... No chances with what this tiny snake might potentially do. The venomous snake that could potentially do all kinds of harm to her and her children. Friends, when it comes to sin inside of us, we must kill it brutally. We must choose violence because it holds potential harm not only for us, but for everybody around us. Sin grows and it spreads. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that it's like leaven or yeast spreading through bread. And you see it here. Solomon's sin doesn't stay in Solomon. It spreads out to the public. You think about how terrible it is when a pastor or a leader falls into sin, even now. It impacts lots and lots of people. Think about how much more the case that would be with the king of God's people building false worship sites. It leads many into sin. We, we must be merciless with sin. We must not cling to it, but kill it and cling to Christ and only Christ. It's interesting that you read back there in Genesis two twenty four uh, that a, a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. And I always love in the wedding vows, do you promise to cling to whoever and only them as long as you both shall live? And this is precisely what Jesus does with his church. That's the imagery the Bible uses, right? He's the, the bridegroom and we his people are his bride. And what is... What does God the Son do in history? He steps out of heaven and he takes on flesh so that he might save his bride from sin and death. Jesus, Uh, the Bible's imagery is so great. Satan is pictured as a serpent and Jesus is pictured as coming to earth as the great dragon slayer. And he goes into the the pit of the dragon where he is consumed and scarred by the flames of death. And yet after three days, he emerges victorious. His resurrection shows that the cross was victory, not defeat. He has blood on his sword and the keys of death and Hades in his hands. And he comes to you and me, his people, and he frees us from our chains. And he takes hold of us, And He clings to us forever so that we might not ever fall into the darkness of death again. And we as people are called to cling to Him and only Him as long as we shall live. This passage summons us not to cling to those things we think we love in the world, not to cling to following our feelings, but to cling to Christ and only Christ. And friends, there will be times in our lives where we feel like our faith is failing and that that we can't quite hold on to it. But take heart. He will hold you fast. Those who are in the hands of the good shepherd cannot be plucked out. Jesus receives all who the Father gives to him, and all who come to him will never be cast out or let go. So keep holding on to the one who holds you. One last point. Do you see when this happened in Solomon's life? Look at verse 4. When he was old this should stand out as a terrifying warning for all of us. And especially in a church like ours, we are not spring chickens here. We're seasoned. We don't want to fail at the end of the race. We want to finish the race as Paul did. Remember our scripture reading earlier, he talks of many who turned away, hear, what their itching ears might want to hear. Friends, don't at the end of your life turn to myths. Don't at the the end of your life begin chasing your feelings. Keep clinging. Keep clinging to Christ. He will bring you safely home. He holds you in his hands. He has never done you wrong. He will only give you good finish well like Polycarp some of you know Polycarp he is a disciple of the apostle John first second century his death is quite famous he is 86 years old and Rome comes for him because he will not acknowledge Caesar as lord so famously he stands before the proconsul in an arena full of people and he is chided, have respect for your age, swear by the spirit of Caesar, repent, say, away with the Christians, curse Christ, and I will release you. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, I will throw you to them. If you do not repent, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. This, the proconsul had the fire kindled, and Polycarp answered his summons to the celestial city as he gave up his life in death, holding fast to the one who held him. Indeed, he entered into the glory of his master. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. Christian, he will do you no wrong. Cling to Jesus in love. Know his word. Hide it in your heart so that you might not sin against him. Keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have promised that the good work you began in us will be brought to completion. We thank you that those you call, you justify. And that those you justify, you sanctify. And that those you sanctify, you will glorify. That nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ, that nothing shall separate us from you. We are yours, and so we pray that by your grace and your mercy that we would finish well the race of the Christian life, that we would cling to Christ our King to the very end. He alone is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. And so, to you, our only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority now and forevermore. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.